Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. Look, I've spent most of my life in sales. I was quite a good sales guy. I was a terrible sales manager. I was a better sales director. And I think I was a better managing director. I got to the point where I was then playing to my strengths. But because I've come up through sales, because I've done cold calling, I've dialed 300 times a day. I've done 10,000 hours in sales. I often help clients think about their sales organization or fix their sales organization, particularly technology-led businesses where the founder doesn't come from sales and just helping them understand what their sales function might look like. In some cases, that's been hiring their first salesperson through to thinking about what the structure of sales looks like, what their sales and marketing organization might look like. So what we've done today is we've pulled together a podcast of three experts. We've got Jamal Rainier, we've got David Davis, and we've got Justin Rothmarsh. And so what I've got is I've got a great sales guy who does multi-million dollar deals, never wants to be a sales manager, never wants to be a sales director. So what does that look like from his point of view? We've got David Davis, who's a Sandler trainer. And if I deliver any sales training, I'm doing Sandler like David's the real deal. He does the full Monty with the submarine and all of that great stuff. You know, that's a thing to help you improve your improve your close rate. And then we've got Justin Rothmarsh, who isn't really anything about close rate, but he's about creating an environment where the sellers only sell and you fix marketing and you fix customer experience and you fix pre-sales so that the sellers can concentrate just on selling. In fact, we've got a workshop with Justin on the farm on the 15th of September. So if you're listening to this and you think that would be really interesting to come and listen to Justin and hear more about what if you doubled the number of sellers and you doubled your revenue? In fact, in Justin's world, what you would typically do is you'd take 10 sellers, you'd replace them with just two, and you'd still double your revenue. You'd have the same number of people. It might be cost neutral, but very, very interesting take on the world of sales. Great conversations that I had in the past with the three of them. We strung it together to try and pull out the nuggets that were really, really interesting and make it flow so that you get challenged when thinking about your sales organization. Sort of thinking you might be listening to this whilst hiding from the rain in Croyd or maybe on your sun lounger now that we're allowed to go to Spain. Anyway, 
When you get back from your holidays, if you're interested in coming to listen to Justin, 15th of September on the farm. But great conversations with all three of my guests. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So I've got a blog post, I think called Seven Steps of Sales. And I suppose really what it is, is Sandler Light. But we have actually had a Sandler trainer on the melting pot. David Davies came on a little while ago. And we talked in detail about the Sandler methodology. And in this clip, David's going to talk about the value of rapport and why rapport building is really critical at the beginning of building a relationship with a prospective client or in a sales situation. And one of the things that's intriguing is I did an NLP course last year. And one of the ways in which you can build rapport instantaneously, which of course has been missing over the last 12 months or so, is shaking hands with somebody. But another way you can do it is to tell a joke or some sort of humorous anecdote. These, you know, shaking hands, laughing together, they build rapport. So anyway, let's hear from David Davies. Learn to have the confidence to establish up front a comfortable environment to do business. And a comfortable environment to do business is founded in rapport, which is the ability or French word that describes two people that are willing to be open and honest with each other. Develop out a good consultation system. Yeah, a really good, strong qualification system that perhaps is founded more in disqualification, finding good reasons why they're not going to do business with you um, than the happy-eared, bouncy bunny approach of enthusiasm, excitement, and you know the wishing and hoping system. And then if nothing else, my, I'm tired of spending my week watching brilliant bits of technology that I'm introduced to, delivered in what I call a wallpaper demo. You stare at the screen and it, it doesn't change from one demo to the next. It's just boring, bland, look at what we've invented stuff. There's no attempt to say, you know, what's important to you? Let's spend time looking at the one, two, four, five things about our technology that are going to change your world. If we've got any time left at the end of the demo, perhaps I'll show you some stuff that you know I'm all excited about. But to start with, let's listen here, understand what's going on in your world, and then let me share with you or show you how our technology or our services might augment your world, cover that gap between where you are and where you want to be, and take you forward. It's all about you know, the art of a great conversation, at least the two people agreeing that there is a problem that's worth solving and a solution that's worth having. Everything else is peddling. And that they agree to carry on talking about it until ultimately one of them purchases it. Gain clarity at the end of the conversation about you know what the next steps are, getting a clear timeline of how they're going to buy with you, who's going to be involved, when, you know, what are the dates and times by which those agreed actions are going to happen. Or, you know, shake hands, stay friends, you know, maintain eye contact the next time you see them. You know, if it's not a fit, be brave enough as a salesperson to walk away. Not sit there with trying to work out how you can how you can twist this individual who doesn't want what you do into taking it off you. Half of the long sales cycles in this planet are created by salespeople. They're rarely, if ever, created by the buyer. And you know, from what I can see, typically in a one, two, three-year sales cycle, they've brought other solutions elsewhere three or four times before they've eventually decided to buy yours. That's a salesperson's fault. That's nobody else but the salesperson's fault. 
It's our inability to have a, a productive conversation. So we've just heard from David about rapport relationships. Next up, we've got an insight from Justin Rothmarsh, and he's going to talk about the danger. And I think, I, well, we've I've seen this before with teams I've run or companies I've been in or, or even clients where the client relationship is with a single salesperson and the danger of of having your relationships in the hands of people who may leave, I guess. But what do you do about it? How do you, how do you think about this differently? Let's hear from Justin. The instinctive question, which is essentially an objection disguised as a question, is what about relationships? And salespeople will say things like, well, as we all know, sales is all about relationships. So in your model, what happens to relationships? I say, well, can we address the premise before we address the question? You said, as we all know, sales is all about relationships. What the hell does that mean? And if you ask a salesperson that a question, they'll stutter and stammer because they don't really want to disclose exactly what they mean by that statement. I mean, really what they're inferring is that customers buy primarily on the back of a personal relationship that they have with a sales rep. And that's simply not true in most cases. And to the degree that it is true, in most cases, it would indicate a severe operational problem with the organization they work for. The reality is most people purchase because of the commercial relationship they have or think they're going to have with the organization. Or even the personal benefit that the purchase might bring to the purchaser. Exactly, which is a function of the commercial relationship, not the personal relationship. Yeah. It's fairly easy to disprove that sales is all about relationships. All you have to do is count how many of your accounts your salespeople steal when they leave your organization, or count how many of your competitors' accounts salespeople steal when you headhunt them to come and work for your organization. The sort of lazy assumption is if we hire a competitor salesperson, they'll bring their whole book of business with them, but it never works like that. If I was to survey our clients, which I do often, and say, look, when you employ a salesperson's rep, how many accounts do they bring with you? The average answer, and there isn't a lot of variation here, the average answer is one. And when you ask the opposite, when a salesperson leaves, how many accounts do they take? The average answer is one. So it turns out that sales is not all about personal relationships. Now, that's not to say that the personal relationship doesn't have some value but we need to recognize exactly what is the value that a personal relationship adds and where exactly is it added. Most salespeople win sales in spite of, not because of their personal relationships. Well, and it goes back to our earlier conversation about proposition. If a salesperson can bring you a really well-defined proposition where you can see value to the organization and value to you personally, and it's commercially compelling, as long as you don't really object to them, then you know, you're know you probably going to have a conversation with them. Yeah, if you're a buyer and a salesperson comes to you and says, look, one of the things you're going to love about this organization is me. And the reason you're going to love me is I'm going to run interference between you and the organization so you don't have to put up with any of their bullshit. You might like the sales guy, but why the hell would you want to do business with an organization like that? <laughs> yeah. My view on personal relationships, particularly where commodity type purchases are concerned is that if you if you are purchasing commodities, you need a personal relationship with a salesperson only to the extent that the vendor's organization is operationally dysfunctional. Yes. And and you see that a lot in organizations who have what they call an account manager, which they say is a salesperson, but is actually 
an order taker slash project manager who knows how to get the order processed inside the organization. Yeah, a lot of our clients will rename their customer service team account management. So they basically move the responsibility from account management from salespeople to the customer service team. But the only caveat there is that there's no allocation of accounts to people. So it's one big pool, one big factory. You know, so we say to our accounts, look, yesterday you had one representative, now you have 10. They all love you and care for you. Call the customer service team. Next in queue will take your call, and all of them will be resourced so that they can provide a superior level of care than that which was previously provided by a field-based salesperson. I have a bias towards people doing the thing that they're good at and the thing that we're relying on them for. So I don't think we should have software development teams also doubling up as receptionists. And I don't think we should have salespeople doubling up as delivery people or customer service people. And I remember when I went to Pier 1, one of the things that we looked at was what proportion of our account management team's time was spent in things other than selling. And we were able to identify 25% of the work that the account management team did that had nothing to do with sales. And so we created a customer service team to take that workload off them and over time raise the quotas by 25% because they had, they had more selling time. So they should be able to sell more. The next clip is another clip from Justin Rothmarsh where he talks about exactly that, that in his opinion, in the system that he's built and documented in the machine, that if our role as sellers is to manipulate conversation for commercial gain and we're good at it, maybe we should be spending most of our time doing it. So anyway, let's hear from Justin and what he thinks. If you look at, say, a consumer business like Facebook, and then you say, well, we're not actually talking about the consumer-facing stuff, we're talking about the B2B stuff, then if Facebook had a enterprise sales team, which they undoubtedly do, then we would definitely be in a position to help them with that. And in that case, of course, their market would be significantly smaller. Their audience would be significantly smaller than it would on the consumer side. Perhaps you could... Talk the audience through this idea of specialization and breaking it down. So what does the supporting cast start to look like if the salesperson is only selling and that's the only thing that we're counting on them to do? To engineer the organization so that the salesperson's only selling, and more specifically, they're only having selling conversations in pursuit of net new business. That's the precise description of what they're doing. They do nothing else. So no solution design, no project management, no prospecting, no customer service, nothing. So to put salespeople in that position really means re-engineering four other departments or three other departments around them. The first thing that you have to do is rebuild and probably enlarge significantly your customer service team so that the customer service team has the capacity and the capabilities to look after all of that annuity business. I mean, there must be absolutely nothing lacking. So there is never any request from an existing customer to talk to a salesperson with respect to existing business. So that's the first thing we do, build significantly more capable and more robust customer service teams. And we could spend an hour just talking about how we do that. And then the next piece is engineering, particularly in technical environments. The sales team can't stand on its own two feet. It needs uh, support from engineering because when there are requests for custom products or proposals or when there are technical problems, obviously, if we don't want salespeople involved, we need a tight integration between sales and customer service. So in a lot of organizations, we help them to re-engineer 
engineering. Typically, we'll split engineering into four separate groups. You know, production engineering, which is um, shop floor facing, design engineering, which is sales facing, new product development, and then subject matter experts who are their own separate little division. So that's a whole ton of work on engineering and technical environments. And then the last thing we do is build a much more robust marketing departments, which basically means splitting marketing in two. So we take the existing marketing group and we say, okay, you guys are Marcoms. That's all you ever were anyway. But now we need a new group called marketing whose sole reason for existence is to replenish salespeople's opportunity queues every day. So we build this promotions team and we tightly couple it to marketing so that every day somebody comes to work and tops up salespeople's opportunity queues for them. And it's only after we've done work on you know, significant amounts of work on those three adjacent functions that we're in a position to say to salespeople, okay, right, the only thing you need to do now is have selling conversations in pursuit of net new business. And you've also have somebody even book the diary of the salesperson so that the salesperson is not even in control of their own time. Is that the best way to think about it? You must be English because when I say diary here in the States, nobody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, do, you have, do you have to say calendar? I, mo- I moved here from Australia, so we say diary in Australia. But yeah, so in the case of a field salesperson, but I've got to say, Dominic, most of our clients move almost all of their selling activities inside. Okay. In almost every case, it's false that selling needs to be done in the field. It doesn't. And to the extent that there are activities that do need to be performed in the field, in most cases, those activities tend to be technical in nature, not sales-focused. So there's Justin's view. One of the other guests we've had on is Jamal, who works for Oracle, but in his spare time coaches other sellers who have a desire to improve. And when I spoke to him, he also has something to say about unburdening sales organization or sales people, sellers, to allow them to concentrate on the job of selling. So let's hear from Jamal. When you have um, a seller of capacity, which could be an individual contributor, could be the CEO, whoever the seller of capacity is, unencumber them as much as you can to do the high value work, the high value tasks, the high value interactions, the, the, the customer interactions, and try just unencumber them from all the other stuff where, wherever possible. And it'll pay big dividends. I see exactly that when I'm talking to some of the smaller organizations that I might work with where, you know, the CEO or the MD is really that seller of capacity. You know, the managing director of a business is going into the managing director of a customer or maybe the senior partner if it's a professional services organization. And they're making a promise that they can deliver for the client. And they're, you know, they're looking them in the eye. And then they, they, they you know, we're having a conversation with them later and they're thinking about changing their model and hiring a salesperson to replace them in those interactions. And it just seems that that's just going to be incredibly difficult. You know, it's actually, there is a thing about somebody senior coming in and doing, doing those large deals. What do you think about that? I couldn't agree more. My, my signature strategy is to include my own management as early as possible in an interaction. My experience is that doing larger deals is on the one hand, very few people know how to do it. And on the other hand, it's such a leapfrog in terms of benefit for two types of companies The the startup just wants revenue, right? Just give me a hockey stick of revenue. So I can get my next round of funding or, you know, I can prove to the market that, you know, we've got, we got legs. 
And then to the mature company, they're looking for profit. So just getting the revenue number up, you you got to work the deal right so that you get the margin that's there. But the margin opportunities and the revenue opportunities are so amazing that I think that learning how to institutionalize, how to increase the size of deals is the next opportunity in enterprise sales. Right? There's been a lot of talk and there's been a lot of movement in technology to try to enable, especially SDRs inside people, how to, how to personalize their outreach, how to get to know customers very quickly, et cetera. And that's moved the needle somewhat. But if you can change a conversation from a $100,000 ARR conversation to a million dollar ARR conversation, and that's just changing the way that you sell what you have, you're going to transform your revenue. You're going to transform your company. In lots of organizations, there's a time I think maybe between 30 and 50 employees where one of the challenges they have to overcome is what gets you promoted. So as businesses grow incrementally, exponentially, anyway, in that early phase, before they get to 100 employees, often the person who ends up running dev is the software developer who's been there a long time or the person who ends up running customer experience has been there for a long time. The person who's been the becomes the sales manager is one of the sellers who's been around a while. And the organization can develop a muscle that says, if you want to earn more money, what you need to do is become a manager. I think there's a point at which, unless you've already worked it out or read a book about it, that you come to the conclusion that this doesn't make any sense, then actually what you want is you want your best salesperson to stay a salesperson if that's what they want to do, if they have no talent if their skill in life is not to be a manager of people but to be an amazing salesperson or to be an amazing technical person or to be amazing at pre-sales or to be amazing as a developer or whatever job they do there should be a should be a way to stay as a sole contributor and i had a great conversation with this with jamal who is a mature person who has decided that they never want to do management because they love selling so we have a great conversation about about that. And I think inspirational for many people who don't want to be managers. Let's hear from Jamal. I'm an intentional individual contributor. You know, like I said, I've been selling for almost 20 years and I've, I've made the choice that I, I love what I do. I love being in the field, in the foxhole, doing the, the work with the customer through hard times and great times. It's never really appealed to me to go into management. And start taking on, you know, half selling and half admin roles. That's just not something that's been interesting to me. But I certainly work with executives on both sides of the table every day. And it's so interesting, isn't it? In, the, in salespeople's early career, often they feel that the only way to get promoted or get, get ahead in an organization is to become a manager. So in your early career, where were you that staying a sole contributor made, made sense? In the early years, I wasn't sure. You know, I was green. <clears throat> I was just trying to figure out the game. And uh, it took me a while to figure out the game. But once I was in it long enough, then I simply observed, right? You know, I, I used to think that the secrets of the world were exactly that secrets, especially the business world. But when you, when you just observe long enough, you start to really just see the reality regardless of the hype or uh, whatever you, you hear from others. And I just started to see that in the companies where I worked, it was a really tough job. I think, I think the barrier to entry was first line manager, right? Being, being the manager of a team, all 
always, you know, m most of the managers that I have, they were always traveling because they had reps in different territories. So they had to go be with them or, you know, help them along with deals, etc. Then I would just observe kind of the day-to-day -day lives of the people who were up in the, in the management chain. And there were some positives and there were some negatives. And for me, I just really enjoyed working with the customers every day and establishing those long-lasting relationships, both, you know, from inception, from the prospecting and initial engagement stage, all the way through to having very long-standing relationships. That was something that, that I really saw that I was good at and I really enjoyed. So I, I stayed. I wonder whether if I just put brain surgeon on my business card, I'd be able to persuade people to let me drill holes in their heads. I'm amazed at the low bar required for people to think they're in sales. We've got professional exams for lawyers and doctors and, you know, anyone technical takes certification after certification. I remember talking to the guys at Macquarie Telecom Group about their onboarding plan for graduates joining their their technical support team. They take they take a certificate every month for two years. Whereas with salespeople, he's a bit mouthy, likes to talk to people, thinks he's a salesperson. Somebody once said to him, mate, you're the life and soul of the party. You'd be great in sales. I'm not sure that necessarily those things have anything to do with great salespeople. And David Davis definitely has a view on putting it on your business card doesn't make you a salesperson. So let's hear from David. Sadly, there's no standing requirement to, there are no prerequisites for a career in, well, there are prerequisites. Sorry, Dave, you're being an idiot. The prerequisites are, you know, uh, a mouth, preferably two ears and two eyes. And a pulse. Yeah, a pulse. Um, yeah, the ability to miss the mirror. Um, but that's about it. You and I have been around long enough to know that, you know, there's a quarter of a century push on trying to professionalize our industry. And yeah, these people pop up and try for a while. There's no, there's no condensed commitment to turning this into a profession. Yeah, again, the firebrand guys will tell you, to constantly tell them that about 10% of this industry can call itself a professional. Having salesperson on your business card does not make you a professional salesperson. And yet with all those millions and millions of pounds invested in sales training, sales techniques, sales tactics, yeah, the results are the same today as they were when I started out. But it's that fundamental difference, isn't it, between push and pull? Lots of the systems that people are investing in training their people on are still around that interruption, you know, throw up and then pester. You know, it's still, there's still a lot of people investing a lot of time and money in training their people because that's their paradigm. Right. It's the, um, dear Mr. Client, let me put it to you that you're an idiot systems that get taught and not enough investment in the elegant art of great conversation, which is all sales should be really, you know, two people openly sharing with each other challenges and potential recommendations to overcome them. You know, hard selling gets hard resistance. I first took a Gallup strength assessment in 2001 and came out that I have a Cheever. I've hired a lot of Cheevers. 30% of the population of the planet are Achiever, and Achievers are intrinsically motivated. We get up in the morning and we have a mental checklist, and if we get to the end of the day and we haven't achieved anything, there's a certain amount of self-loathing. We tend not to go on holidays and lie on the beach. We tend to go on holidays and do stuff, so we go on sailing holidays or skiing holidays. 
There's an energy, perpetual energy about achievers. I would say most of the salespeople I've hired have achiever. But I wouldn't say they were all greedy. I don't think I'm greedy. And I don't think most of the salespeople are either. I think if you said, are the software developers that we hire greedy? Are they money motivated? If we paid them per line of code, would they write more code? Would they write better code? Could we pay piece rate for software developers? I think most people would say that sounds terrible. If we paid people, if we paid our copywriters per line of copy and there was no recourse to quality, then maybe we would expect to get poor quality code or poor quality content. But when it comes to salespeople, we think they're money motivated. I, I have to say, I think salespeople are just people. And I think the evidence from, there was a Harvard Business Review article, and we'll link to it in the show notes, I think 2016. And they looked at how many high-performing salespeople were motivated by money. And they found it was only 20%. So the, the myth is that salespeople are greedy. And if you just give them a big enough carrot, they will go out and sell for you. And, but I think commission is, commission is a tax you pay for not having a very good product or for the salespeople not believing that your product is the right thing to do for a customer. I did some work with Jill Garrett when she was managing director of Gallup UK. And one of the things that she taught me was a question to ask at interview for salespeople. And she said, Dom, the best people in life in any job, no matter what it is, even sales are intrinsically motivated. And the question to ask to find an intrinsically motivated salesperson is this, tell me about your best deal. The money motivated ones will tell you about how much they earned. And the intrinsically motivated ones are likely to tell you a story about the impact they had on a customer. And obviously, in my life, the ones I've hired are the latter. So let's hear from Jamal on what he thinks about the notion that salespeople are greedy. So the first time you do a really big deal and make a lot of money, it's all about the money. And then the second time or the third time, the money loses its luster and these other things really come to light. One thing that really, really hit me the second time I did a really large deal was the impact that that deal had. Not just so, so I'm in an enterprise space, right? I, I sell enterprise stuff to enterprise customers who use my software for really mission critical applications. And the impact that I saw from the second deal that we did was that it actually impacted the lives of their customers who are millions of people all over the world in a, in a really, really positive way. And that, that by far took the pole position in terms of what I found important or fulfilling in my life was, gee, I'm not the only guy on the team to make this deal happen, but I am a leader of, of this team. This team made this deal happen. The deal put a new reality in place for the customer and the customer was able to impact their millions of customers worldwide through our joint efforts. Uh -huh. So so another thought occurs to me as you say that, which is that you're, you're, although you're not a manager, you're, you're still a leader of your virtual team. Some, someone once told me this and now I tell other, people's that, other people this. I have no reports so nobody reports to me, but I have a lot of people who work for me. And when it's time to do these big engagements, the team grows to 30, 40, 50 people globally. 
it's a big shift, right? Let, let me just say this, Donald. I hate kind of run rate sales. I hate it. I hate smiling and dialing. I hate tons of outreach uh, in terms of very low level kind of just get your foot in the door where there's there's nothing going. I just hate all that stuff. But I love the impactful relationship building with senior people on both sides of the table and talking about su- supremely important topics to the company. What if I suggested to you that we pay the developers in your team per line of code? How would you think that would impact the quality of the code that they wrote? Or maybe if we took people in a call center and we bonus them based on how short the calls were with customers. How how impactful do you think that would be on the quality of the calls and your customer satisfaction scores? And yet when we take salespeople, we say, we're going to pay you based on deals closed. And then we're surprised when salespeople close deals that aren't necessarily in the best interest of the customer or or our own company. They're definitely in their best interests as it earns them commission. So there's not an alignment. And then many companies spend a lot of time trying to align the sales commission program to fix the poor behavior that shows up. And then a 2016 article in Harvard Business Review looked at the profile of high-performing salespeople. And contrary to popular view that salespeople are money-motivated, Turns out that only 20% of high-performing salespeople, that the salespeople in the top 15% of all salespeople that they looked at who regularly hit their quota, only 20% of them are greedy. The other 80% are not money-motivated. They're motivated by status and impact and doing a good job and helping clients solve problems. So just like the rest of the population, in fact, because I think the other bit that they go on to say is that 20% of the population is motivated by money. So my contention is that salespeople are people and that whatever it is you think works from a human behavioral perspective works for salespeople. Salespeople aren't different. You can't pay people to do things. All the research says if you pay people to do things, they do less of it. And so paying salespeople commission makes no sense. Here's what Justin has to say. We uh, eliminate commissions entirely in every environment where we work, and that's conditional upon us working with someone. If someone wants to work with us and they say, look, Justin, we love your whole methodology, except the bit about eliminating commissions, I will say, well, you can't love our whole methodology because you couldn't even understand it, let alone love it, if it wasn't obvious to you that piece rate pay needs to be eliminated when you apply division of labor in any environment. I mean, we used to have piece rate pay in production environments 20, 30, 50 years ago. And it's gone now, not because somebody made a philosophical decision about piece rate pay. You know, there's an interesting philosophical argument, but piece rate pay in manufacturing was eliminated for practical reasons. And that's because the productivity of an environment where you have division of labor is not the sum of the productivity of the individual contributors. It's more a function of the the synchronization of the individual contributors, which is the co- when you apply division of labor, division of labor holds out the promise of massive increases in productivity. But the flip side is that in order to exploit that potential, you have to figure out how to synchronize the crew, which means 
Ultimately, you need somebody banging a drum to which everyone marches, whether that person's a shop floor scheduler or a project manager or a conductor in an orchestra or air traffic control in a busy airport. In an environment where you have division of labor to function effectively, individual contributors need to give up their autonomy in favor of a, um, a central person who does traffic control. And look, I've been advocating for a number of years that we don't need to pay salespeople commission. And one of the biggest pushbacks I get, along with the hate mail from salespeople, is that you won't be able to attract salespeople to a job unless you pay them commission. You've had 25 years of experience of solving this problem. How do you manage to do that? Well, it's true that if you don't pay commission, you won't attract the crusty old reps who are working for your competitors, and that doesn't cause us to lose that much sleep. But the interesting thing is if you advertise, if you run an ad for a sales job and you say that uh, we will pay you your market value, we will provide opportunities for you, so all you have to do is have selling conversations, uh, no paperwork, no expense reports, no proposals, nothing. All you have to do is sell. And we're going to pay you your market value. So if, if you would reasonably expect to earn 180K a year, you're going to earn 180K a year, except we're going to pay it to you in the form of a salary, not you know base plus commission. Our experience is when we run ads like that, we have folks lining up down the street for those jobs. Yeah. Now, do we get your competitive salespeople? Maybe not, but that doesn't cause me to lose that much sleep. So my view that sales commissions are mad, it's not shared by everybody. I know I am probably rowing against the tide. In fact, Simon LaFosse, who has been on the podcast, the founder and chairman of LaFosse Associates, a recruitment company, powers his business by paying commissions. But I'm not sure that recruiters do sales so much as pushing transactions over the line. And therefore, it might be applicable in those situations. I've also had dinner a number of times with uh, Peter Rowling's former managing director at Foxton's and then CEO at Marsh and Parsons. He's adamant that in the estate agency world that he's been in, if you're not motivated by money, you can't be a seller. But I just wonder which of you has ever had an estate agent persuade you to sell your house? See, because I'm with Justin. I think if selling is the manipulation of conversation for commercial gain, sales is persuading you to do something that when you got up this morning and brushed your teeth, you weren't planning to do. And I ring an estate agent when I've already decided to sell my house. And I go and do business with the least worst one of them I can find. So maybe they're not in the sales game at all. They just think they are. Maybe they're just aggressive order takers. Anyway, David Davies thinks I'm mental and he thinks sales commission or the lack of sales commission is just a fad or a bandwagon that people are jumping in from. So let's hear from David and have some, some of his reason. Trouble with bandwagons is you know, sometimes if you don't jump quick enough, your foot slips and you get caught under the undercarriage. And I think it's a bit of a, a movement to not – it's almost people's advertising, we don't pay our salespeople commission. Is a good thing like that was a bad thing. That was what you know, the industry sin was. And the industry sin isn't commission. The industry sin is investing in cheap, tired and testing tactics that make salespeople ugly and uncomfortable to spend any time with and you know, making you feel like you want to run the shower call with your knees in your hand after having just met one. 
there's nothing wrong in commission. There's nothing wrong in performance bonuses. There's nothing. That's not the problem. And you don't get a better class of person because you don't pay them commission. You're still going to see the same tired and testing approaches to sales, whether you pay them commission or not. I did some work with a client a couple of years ago. And one of the things that we looked at was their their sales pipeline and their conversion rate. I, I mentioned right at the beginning that one of the things I often do is help clients with some consultative sales training to help them improve their close rate. And in this case, 10% seemed really low. You know, if, we, if we're getting 25, 30%, then, you know, we can optimize it. But 10% feels like it's broken. And I suspect that the reason it was so low is that the sales team needed to have something to talk about in their sales meetings on a Friday. Nobody could turn up with nothing in their pipeline. And because the company's close rate was now 10% and that was acceptable, it was okay to turn up and not close deals. And I just wondered whether 90% of your pipeline is rubbish. So most of the, you're spending all this time trying to find out whether the deal is progressing as you thought. You're, it's just too much volume, too much noise. And I think one of the things that people are nervous of, human beings and maybe not so good salespeople, is is getting somebody to say no. A no is nearly as good as a yes. If you've got enough volume of opportunities coming through, then knowing which ones are going to turn into a deal is vital. And one of the ways you do that is press people to a no. You know you haven't created enough value because they're now they haven't said yes. There's no, there's no uncertainty. David Davis thinks pushing for a no is a good thing. Here's what he said to me. It's tough to say no if you don't understand what the individuals just taught you about. So sometimes, yeah, that no can just be the embarrassed time. I didn't really get it. Prospects are still the best sales trainers in the market and they don't cost very much. Yeah, a bit of petrol and there you go, um, but not much else. But learning how to get no's early in the conversation from you know, people that just aren't a fit, aren't fit to be clients. They're not a fit for you. They don't want what you do. They do want what you do. They just want it for free. So it made that whole selling process super efficient and trained the prospect to be more honest in the sense of, you know, the more honest you are, the closer you and I'll get to really solving the problems that you've got. If you don't tell me what's going on, any solution I'm going to offer you next is going to be half-baked or yeah, completely off the mark. I'm going to wrap up with a bit more from Justin Rothmarsh. And this is another one of his uh, controversial ideas, but I like it. It's the idea that the salespeople have been having one over on the rest of the world. The idea that qualification is a thing which is a trick or a myth that salespeople have been perpetuating. Because somebody who's already decided to buy and has a budget allows your salespeople to be order takers. It allows your salespeople to not have to sell. The hard stuff of persuading a human being to do a thing that they weren't planning to do this morning when they were brushing their teeth, manipulating conversation for commercial gain. And so what if you didn't qualify? What if you just spoke to people who you thought you could help and did some selling? 
So the trick question, I guess, is that Justin poses often to audiences. So you are the CEO of your business. You're the managing director of your business. You have a sales function. If tomorrow you double the number of salespeople in your sales function, do you believe you would double your revenue? And if you can't answer yes to that, his view is that you don't have a sales process and that you should put one in because a process allows you to scale and paying salespeople piece rate and allowing them to spend their time on not selling is not a sustainable process. And therefore, what will slow you down, what will limit your growth, what will limit your potential is not being able to scale your sales organization. And let's hear from Justin as the last clip on the podcast about what he thinks you should do about that. The problem that we're trying to fix is sales people are hideously unproductive. And that manifests for most organizations in an inability to scale the sales function beyond a certain size because of rapidly diminishing returns. So if you went to most organizations and said to them, look, what would happen if you doubled your sales volumes, they would know how to scale up production. They would say, well, we'd need a new production facility, or we'd need to run a third shift, or we'd need to install some more equipment in the plant. But if you go to an organization that has insufficient sales and ask them the same question, well, how do you scale up sales? They draw a blank. And of course, the answer should be, well, we double the size of our sales function. But nobody wants to give that answer because everybody's kind of implicitly aware of the fact that if they double the size of their sales function, they wouldn't double sales. And that should cause us concern because if a production manager told us that doubling the number of shifts or doubling the amount of plant and equipment wouldn't have a commensurate impact on production, we would instantly recognize there was something wrong with the design of the sales function. Completely. And at the heart, why, why is sales so poorly run or managed in most organizations, do you think? There's an absence of recognition that it is poorly run and poorly managed. I think folks don't think from first principles. I mean, the point that I made about production being inherently scalable and sales not being, and the fact that there's that discrepancy should be pointing us to a core problem, to my mind, is kind of obvious. And if folks stop to think from first principles rather than just parroting the orthodoxy from generation to generation, maybe you know more folks will be realizing this. But it's to my mind, it's pretty bloody obvious. Why aren't people thinking more deeply about sales is probably a better question. And I think the reason is that, um, to be frank, for most of the recent history of modern industry, it hasn't been necessary for us to think that deeply about sales because the success of business has not been driven by sales. It's been driven by new product development and operational improvement. And is your thinking here on sales predicated on enough marketing activity? Or is it that sales without marketing activity can survive on its own? It depends how you define marketing. If you define marketing as most marketing departments do, or actually that's not true. If you looked at the activities of most marketing departments and drew up a functional definition of marketing based upon the stuff that marketing folks do, then I think that most of the stuff that marketing folks do has very little impact on short-term sales, which is a problem. I think most businesses are not built on the back of marketing. Most businesses are built on the back of sales. So most marketing folks don't spend much of their time on the generation of sales opportunities. They spend most of their time on the necessary infrastructure that's required, you know, websites and e-commerce and brochures and uh, sales collateral and so on. And this is one of the core problems 
we seek to address. I mean, if we want to build an environment where salespeople do nothing to do, which is most assuredly what we do want to do, then it's necessary that we reconfigure the marketing department so the marketing department can serve up sales opportunities to salespeople at the rate at which they consume them. So, you know, any organization that we work with, salespeople's opportunity queues are replenished every single morning before salespeople get to work. And salespeople have nothing to do with the origination of sales opportunities. They focus simply on performing selling activities against the opportunities that are served up to them. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.